So hello and welcome to this episode of Physical Attraction. Now way back in September 2017, approximately 150 episodes ago or so, I had my first ever guest on the show, it was Phil Torres, and interviewing him was such a great experience that it actually sort of inspired me to have several other guests on the show since, and uh, we've sporadically stayed in touch I think over the last three years since he's been on the show. And um, it seems highly appropriate then that he would be our first ever repeat guest. And it may not have escaped anyone's notice that we're in a bit of a catastrophic risk crisis at the moment, and Phil has devoted a huge chunk of his career to studying existential risks. It's the kind of career where I think you never really want to be all that relevant, but unfortunately that's where we are at the moment. So without further ado, the second part of our interview. So I think the point to sort of draw from this really is that what this particular crisis has shown us is that there is a few parameters of a virus that differed between SARS and MERS and SARS-CoV-2. And those few parameters may be something that in 10, 15 years or even sooner could be things that people could twiddle with in a lab to adjust their own pathogen. And they can clearly, these small parameters that might not seem to be a huge difference, make the difference between a small outbreak that no one really remembers that much or a world-changing global pandemic. And uh, it's disturbing to think of people fiddling around with this stuff. And it's worth noting that there have been uh, a number of um, terrorist groups in the past that have been quite explicit about the importance, uh, about the the um, usefulness of um, synthesizing some kind of uh, pathogen. Um, like there's the Geo Liberation Front, which is uh, which is um, an environment omnicidal environmental uh, uh, group that has you know not a big uh, following, based in Toronto. But they have um, explicitly s- stated as their goal to. Um, th- they've explicitly mentioned that uh, bioterrorism is the best um, mechanism by which uh, to bring about the extinction of Homo sapiens, or what another um, uh, um, what is a magazine article in in uh, Earth First um, called Homo shitticus. Uh, you know that we're we're just this alien species uh, that's destroying the entire biosphere. To be better without us, and they talk about not not just synthesizing one pathogen, but two, and so that so there'd be a second release after, as they put it, the politicians and uh, you know celebrities emerge from their uh, from their bunkers. So various others. I mean, the Islamic State. You know, there there's some individuals who are talking about the immense advantages of. Um, of uh, bioterrorism, so um, so there is the will out there, for sure. There are individuals who have explicitly talked about using um, you know exp- using the manipulations of the building blocks of life to try to decimate the human population, and increasingly there is the means. And then I think COVID nineteen is is a a good reminder that this is a very real risk, and it it could potentially spread around the world, including to these isolated uh, camps up in Siberia, all the way down to Villa Les Astralis in Antarctica, where there's, you know, 150 scientists or whatever working. Um, so it's, uh, it's a very uh, real concern. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And as you say, people might, might say at the moment, why would China develop and release a bioweapon in their own country? Um, which I think is a pretty good argument against why it isn't a, a bioweapon at this point. But the same level of mutually... I think that should be underlined. This did not come from a lab. Yeah, Almost definitely. certainly did not but, come from um, a lab. But, it, but <laughs> yeah. in general, as you say, if if it becomes a question of one of these omnicidal agents using it, um, then 
it's not so much a question of, oh, who would want to cause a pandemic that would crash the global economy and ultimately massively disadvantage everyone, regardless of what country they're in. Because we do know that these people exist, these omnicidal agents who have interests in doing something like that um, and don't have the same stake mm-hmm. in things that perhaps even a government would. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. I've, I've written a few papers on, on, on this um, rather disturbing topic. Uh, and and my conclusion is that indeed there uh, is a non-trivial number of of individuals out there who would like to do this. And also, I mean, it's worth noting that probabilities add up over space and time. So even if you just have you know ten thousand people who you know if they were um, presented with a doomsday button, they would willingly press it. Uh, over time, you know that adds up to uh, certainty. Um, you know, over over the course of centuries or or whatever, depending on the. The probability of them getting access to uh, a doomsday button of some sort so it's it's worrisome so this is a nice note to <laughs> to to lead on but um i mean it, 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 again part of part of me just thinks what this should show to people is that actually the attitude of well all of these existential risks that people are concerned about are you know low probability events and the reality of human progress is that blah 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 that you see from some people um it's not something we should necessarily take seriously and we should mm-hmm. be a little bit more we should bias ourselves a little bit more to concern uh when it comes to evaluating these risks surely because the downside to anything like this going wrong is so vast compared to the the uh, mm-hmm. losses you might get from being a little bit more prepared um the same reason that people buy insurance a lot of the time you know so it's um so it, it becomes a little bit wild, I guess, to mm-hmm. speculate about what the long-term consequences of this pandemic might be while we're still in the middle of it. At the moment, it feels like we're in this huge global crisis that is going to shape yeah. the course of human history. The UN Secretary General has said the worst crisis the world has faced since the Second World War. So, we're, and obviously we're seeing unprecedented measures by mm-hmm. governments all around the world in, in terms of economic stimulus and all sorts of other things. So with, with the caveat that it's too early to speculate on anything and we'll be wrong, shall we try and speculate on what some of the long-term consequences might be from the coronavirus pandemic and the responses to it that we're seeing yeah that sounds fun um, i i would also like to to add if if i may um just that you know i had mentioned these high impact events being low probability and you you had just said the, the same thing um if you look at the relevant literature a lot of people who study these issues do assign like like pretty high probabilities to uh, to it, 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 in aggregate, uh, the probability of there being some kind of existential catastrophe is usually estimated to be around like twenty percent. So that's that's really quite high. Um, I, you know, I, I often mention to people if if you were told as you were boarding an airplane that there's a twenty percent chance of the the plane going down in flames, you know, most people would not uh, board. The flight, but you know, where humanity is on that plane right now. <laughs> with, I mean, if you take seriously the, these estimates posed by, uh, um, that are you know as um, provided by the most knowledgeable individuals out there in the relevant domain, um, so it, the probability is really quite high. You know, when you board a plane, there's about a one in eleven million chance that it's going to crash. That's quite different than you know twenty out of a hundred chance that or, or you know martin reese estimated there's a 50 percent chance that civilization will collapse 
uh, before the end of of this century. I was reading the Daniel Kahneman's book, Thinking Fast and Slow. And one of the things that he pointed out in that book was that our assessment of risk, uh, obviously the main point of that book is that we don't really think mathematically unless we really make ourselves do it um, and use our slower brain to do so. Um, But our assessment of risk, he pointed out, was dependent on the specificity with which the scenario, the risky scenario, was outlined. So if you say to someone, I'm going to insure you against anything bad that could happen on your flight, they'll pay a certain amount of money for that insurance. If you say to people, I will insure you against terrorist attack, fire in the cabin, uh, you know, um, engine malfunction, uh, bird strike, etc. The more you specify the risks, the more people are imagining these risks as plausible scenarios. And the more likely they are to view them as more likely to happen. And this, in, to an extent, is sort of a cognitive bias because your your analysis of risk should be one in 11 million, okay, willing to take that to get on this plane uh, versus one in 20, okay, people should invest a bit more in, or one yeah. in five, people should invest more in existential risk type risk. But do you think that I, I, everyone has been watching this film Contagion? I haven't seen it myself. I hear that it outlines a pandemic in in lurid detail do you think there's some argument i haven't seen either we could even use realistic depictions of existential risks that people haven't thought of um do you think they have a role to play in making people take this a bit more seriously or is that kind of a bit out of left field oh i don't think so at all um there have been a number of individuals who um, are either sort of within the field or on the periphery who have talked about the importance of using art as a vehicle for um, getting people interested. There was a really good book by um, Andrew Maynard, who um, runs the, I don't know, Risk Center or something at the University of Minnesota. I think I'm probably getting the details wrong there, <laughs> but, um, but but he does some, you know, re, uh, he does like these little YouTube videos called Risk Bites, um, where he explains different uh, concepts, you know, dangers associated with nanotechnology and so on. And so he had this book that basically um, uh, analyzed the storylines of various science fiction uh, movies that were really popular. Um, I can't remember the the whole list, but like Minority Report and Jurassic Park and so on. And then examined the ethical, the technological and ethical issues associated with the plot. And his the whole idea was that, you know, art is, or at least can be a politically neutral um, uh, invitation to think, you know, about these the um, various issues. So I do think that... Um, you know, movies or novels or whatever uh, can be really useful for um, can persuading individuals that these risks are real, and to do that by um, making them vivid. Because, as you mentioned, a vivid risk is a risk that's easier to take seriously than just an abstract, uh, you know, description. So I, I th- and I know, like the Center for the Study of Existential Risk at Cambridge uh, University of Cambridge. Um, there's uh, an artist there, Yas Ricks, who has, um, uh, I think that like the center actually funded a, a an art exhibit where people depicted um, various like end of the world scenarios, um, it, just something close to that. And it seemed to be like incredibly uh, um, successful at, <laughs> you know, um, depicting these uh, these potential hazards in ways that um, 
are th- that yeah get that peak the the curiosity of individuals and and you know open a door into to to further um investigation of you know what what the 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 dangers are so i think that's that's indeed um really important uh but i also at the same time i think there are some risks um that there's some risks that you really need a general audience, you know, an audience of non-experts to understand uh, sufficiently well for those risks to be mitigated. And I think climate change, global biodiversity loss, and six mass extinction event, and so on, these do require, uh, you know, a, a large, you know, critical mass of uh, voters to, uh, across the country to believe in and to to understand for them to use the power of the ballot to vote the right people into into political power but there are other risks that i don't see a really good argument for why it's important that the general public actually knows about them like like the risks associated with machine superintelligence um that seems it seems much more important to convince like i'm not sure what the public could do to change the outcome of creating, you know, a superhuman level AI system. But I can see that, you know, given, uh, you know, I think Steven Pinker makes a good point when he says that, you know, we have a finite um, reservoir of, you know, potential anxiety. <laughs> so if that's used up by, you know, risk A, um, and you can't do anything about risk A, whereas with risk B, you can, it would be much better to, to encourage people to be anxious about risk B. Um, so I feel like climate, it's much better to, to try to convince the public that climate change, um, is a very real risk that, uh, and you know, the window, window for meaningful, um, action to mitigate it is closing very rapidly, you know, in the next decade or so. Um, but you know, super intelligence, uh, you know, alien invasion, that's another one, you know, there's not much the public can do to prevent, um, people from, you know, uh, actively messaging to extraterrestrial intelligences, um, this is more like a government regulation kind of thing, or you know, peer pressure within uh, certain, you know, <laughs> no, it's, it's an interesting point actually. And yes, I mean, I suppose the risk of what I've talked about happening is that, um, in in my ideal world, I would probably just terrify the population with many lurid depictions of existential risks until they were willing to take the whole thing a lot more seriously. And um, at that <laughs> point, we might be reaching some sort of information overload that is going to um, yeah. depress people a little bit too much. I think. It's interesting talking to people in my family even about yeah. this. Um, yeah. <laughs> I, I made the comment that you know that, that one of the reasons why I was concerned about this before some other people is that I just tend to be concerned about everything before other people. And there comes a point where it's a stopped clock being right twice a day. Um, <laughs> and you know this time you did roll a one on the twenty sided dice, and you're <laughs> going to have to face the consequences in a Dungeons and Dragons style way. But um, right. you know at, at, at the same time it, it, it's this question of how you message surrounding risks um, to motivate positive actions, which is what you want to do. Do you go for a hopeful message and risk people thinking that it's not a, such a big deal, or do you go for the despairing doom and gloom message, which will get people to take it seriously, but perhaps then they won't be willing to take as many actions. It's it's a really, it's a tricky thing that I think the climate community has grappled with for a long time. That that other areas of risk probably have to think about too. Yeah, um, it's it uh, reminds me of you were talking earlier about Sagan and the response to um, his um, anti-proliferation activism, and he was definitely uh, dismissed, um, and. Uh, 
you know, d- disparaged as an alarmist uh, quite a lot, you know, because he did sort of depict, I mean, people in my own field have talked about how he went just a little bit beyond uh, the evidence in some of his claims, early claims about the possibility of a nuclear winter. Some of it was a bit hyperbolic, but um, ultimately it it um, effectuated positive change. And in fact, uh, Reagan and um, was it Reagan and Gorbachev? They both identified Sagan as one reason that the Cold War came to a peaceful end. So it's kind of amazing. So on the one hand, he's been called an alarmist. On the other hand, it's he's identified as a catalyst for uh, you know a, a good outcome for for humanity in this like extraordinary existential existentially dangerous um, uh, situation. So and it also reminds me a bit. There was an article, a study out from Australia from just a few years ago. And the authors were, they were essentially surveying a bunch of individuals about their end of the world beliefs. And they came up with this, this pretty useful tripartite uh, uh, typology, uh, which is that, you know, when people are presented with end of the world thoughts, there tend to be sort of three different responses. One is nihilism, like we're all screwed, you know, so you know, it's it, nihilism, defeatism, you know, there, there's a cluster of uh, views in that, in that neighborhood. And the other one was fundamentalism. So people tend to, you know, um, embrace their religious views and try to make sense of end of the world uh, possibilities within those eschatological narratives. And the third one was activism. And uh, I really like that. I really like this framework. And I've thought a lot about uh, while writing articles for a more popular audience, how is it that I talk about really dark issues? <laughs> you know, so, yeah. uh, to push people into camp three, away from camp one. Yes, de- away, f- definitely away from camp two, <laughs> um, if possible. Because uh, again, as I was saying before, that could could actually just exacerbate things significantly. But yeah, away from a sort of defeatist nihilism and more towards this proactive um, willingness to do whatever is whatever one can possibly do to contribute to solving these very formidable and unprecedented challenges facing humanity. Mm-hmm. And I mean, the psychology surrounding all of this is so fascinating, especially when it comes to one of the uh, books, that, sorry, the essays that I think was in uh, the Sirkovic and Bostrom big compendium of global catastrophic risks research was talking about the association with millennialism, yep. uh, which is another sort of thing that comes from a strain of religious thought, which is this idea that the world has to be uh, destroyed and wrecked in some way to build it anew in a, in a better way that is so attractive to people, whether they be people who believe in the rapture or revolutionaries on the far left or across human society and uh, different belief systems and all kinds of things you can see people with this idea that the world has to be destroyed before it can be rebuilt um and we're sort of seeing the the existing order of the world as it is being profoundly challenged shaped changed in ways that are going to be hard to say anything about until it's like that old quote about the french revolution you know how did that go ask me in a new in a few hundred years and i might be able to tell you how it was. um we, yeah. we don't really know for a long time what the long-term impacts of this will be at the moment people can sort of see their own perspectives of what they want to change out of this given that there is some change i mean what what would you personally like to see um in an ideal world 
coming about as a result of the the changes in this pandemic will allow ourselves to be millennialists who think that mass destruction can change the world what, what would you like to see happen um yeah it just to, to emphasize a point you were making um it's it is you know when one believes that the only thing that separates you from utopia is the apocalypse then that can lead one to be a bit eager that the apocalypse might be around the corner um you absolutely find that in, in a large number of uh into of, Chris, of evangelical christians who subscribe to something called dispensationalism here in the u.s they're sometimes called the armageddon lobby by political scientists um, because they take uh as the philosopher jerry Wallace put it a sort of grim satisfaction in wars and natural disasters especially uh in the middle east you know if there was a, a mushroom-shaped cloud that um, rose up over mesopotamia you know they, they'd uh get a little bit of eschatological elation in anticipation of you know the uh, utopia being right around the corner so that's that's really worrisome it's part of the reason i was saying before that um you know uh, there could be this this uh positive feedback loop with religious beliefs and uh catastrophes like climate change and you're kind of seeing that a bit with COVID 19. um so i don't I, I would like to see i mean ideally you know i have wondered what uh, uh anti-science ideology looks like after climate change has um has wreaked you know global scale havoc and we're s sort of getting a preview of what it might look like because initially i thought surely there's no way when there's overwhelming evidence and the evidence comes in the form of harm to all individuals you know the vast majority of individuals around the world surely um that anti-science uh posture will be you know just untenable but i feel like with the um with the COVID outbreak i mean it's it's there are a lot of people who are just digging their heels in about this still being a hoax so ideally i would i would like the COVID 19 outbreak to vindicate science to some extent and um chip away at this the this what i mentioned what i described before is the zeitgeist of anti-intellectualism um, that is, uh, you know, has a monopoly uh, on, um, you know, thinking, uh, particularly on the political right in the United States. Um, so I'd like to see science come out as a winner, because that would mean the future is going to be brighter than it otherwise would be. But um, I remain pessimistic. I mean, it also would be great if, uh, you know, there, there are a lot of scholars who have focused on um, existential risk and global catastrophic risk who have really struggled to get funding um, to get grants and uh, you know hopefully ideally this would uh, inspire uh, universities and wealthy individuals and so on to actually uh, you know fund in a reasonable uh, way the, the the scholarship of of individuals who are working to ensure that you know humanity slaloms through this obstacle course of of uh tremendous risks uh in front of us and even when it comes to very specific things i mean one thing that i've th th when we go back to the right the t at the top of the interview we talked about there was this war game scenario where they gamed mm -hmm. out a pandemic of a new coronavirus and that report made a whole bunch of recommendations and you would think that maybe people might take the recommendations of reports such as that 
in terms of how to mitigate potential disasters just a little bit more seriously. Moving away from the coronavirus, which is a very difficult thing to do, but we'll give it a shot. Um, let's talk about some of the other research that you've done in the last few years since our last conversation about existential risks. Where has that been taking you? What's been interesting you um, in the field of existential risks lately? And uh, how's it all going? Yeah, so the field is really quite uh, incipient. Uh, it it's, was sort of born from a 2002 paper by uh, the Oxford philosopher Nick Bostrom. But it really wasn't until probably the last 10 years that, um, you know, that, that initial paper did present a kind of programmatic conception of uh, the field. Like here, here's the methodology, here's uh, the aims and so on. But but there really wasn't a significant you know, number of individuals who were working on these uh, the, um, within this program until like the last 10 years or so. Um, and I feel like a lot of the stuff that I have focused on is what might be called like conceptual foundations of existential risk studies. So, you know, looking at different definitions of the concept um, and, you know, ju- juxtaposing them in an attempt to evaluate their relative strengths and weaknesses. Uh, and um, and also, you know, I'm, I'm in the middle of uh, working, of rewriting this book um, that'll come out probably in a couple months that look, that examines the history of the, this naturalistic idea of human extinction, um, you know, from like the pre-Socratics up to, <laughs> you know, through the 20th century and uh, up to the present. Um, and so another thing that I, I've written about recently is a kind of metaphilosophical critique of the field, uh, in particular Nick Bostrom's uh, program, uh, you know, or, or the the paradigm that emerged from that early paper, and I, I've, you know, it's resulted in uh, you know a, um, a pretty lively, we could say, debate among practitioners, um, some of whom whom are sympathetic and others of whom uh, aren't. Um, on board, let's say, <laughs> with the critique. But basically, the idea is that, um, you know, th- up until fairly recently, the focus, uh, when it came to really the, you know, the the worst case out, out, out worst case outcomes for humanity, um, the focus was on human extinction. In particular, it was on the process or event of going extinct, rather than the state or the condition of being extinct. Um, these days, a lot of people see the latter as the worst part of human extinction. So there's all of this potential value that could be realized in the universe that won't be as a result of the state of humanity uh, being um, extinct. Bef- earlier, like with you know, Bertrand Russell and Albert Einstein and even you know, Carl Sagan to some extent, Paul Ehrlich, many others who you know, uh, um, sounded the alarm about, uh, or, or really, you know, tried to encourage others to take seriously this possibility of human extinction. Their real focus was on, uh, you know, what Bertrand Russell uh, called universal death. You know, it's just, you know, the death of, uh, you know, today would be 7 point, uh, I guess 7.8 billion, I think we're at now, um, indiv- you know, individual lives. And as a result of scope neglect, it's really difficult to fathom you know that that's just an inscrutable number of of people but it is uh upon reflection i mean that would that would just be the worst you know outcome that could possibly happen so um you know the the ideas that came out of like bostrom's work were really inspired by these kind of techno utopian visions of what the future could be and a 
a pretty hard-nosed um, utilitarian uh, ethical framework. And the, essentially, the, the argument is that um, in the past, there have been a lot of utopian ideologies that have also embraced a kind of utilitarian and means ends reasoning. And they have very often led to uh, incredibly bad outcomes. Like a lot of the, the uh, you know, apocalyptic terrorist groups have been utopian. Again, as I was mentioning before, you know, what stands between us right now and utopia is this apocalypse. So you need to destroy the world in order to save it. That's the the slogan. And so, um, you know, with, with Bostrom's view, uh, what lies in the future is this utopian world. And, um, and then, you know, with the utilitarian ethics, um, he makes a number of arguments that I find to be really um, unpalatable. So, so sorry, you know, like the value. Sorry, sorry. Could we just no, uh, no, interject ahead, very briefly here? I think there's a few things that, um, and you know, I'm somewhat familiar with this field, uh, partly from talking to you, also from spending a lot of time reading the things these people write. I think we should maybe make a little <laughs> bit more explicit some of the things that we're concerned about here. So one of the assumptions that that comes into the Bostromian worldview a little bit is this idea that you should value future lives the same as lives today. Um, and th this is sort of quite hard to argue with morally in some ways because we, we're talking about um, moral discounting, so to speak. So in, in economics and finance, we have discounting where we say, okay, money today is worth more to me than money in the future um, because I can invest it and will get a rate of return on investment and so on. Um, they, they want to try and avoid what they view as hyperbolic moral discounting of future lives. So that is to say, people nowadays aren't thinking about how their actions might influence the number of people who are alive in um, hundreds of millions of years, for example. Now, now, if you were to take this utilitarian point of view and then try and value everyone's lives equally, um, then you can make an argument, as you say, that the future of humanity it has the potential to be this bright utopia where we go out and colonize the universe and billions upon billions of future humans exist. Um, and so in from this perspective, what we do today is most important, not because of how it impacts us as the 7 billion humans who are alive at the moment, but how it might impact the countless trillions upon trillions of people in the future. And this sounds like a fairly innocuous ideology, but let's sort of give a really uh, trite example to illustrate why it might not be, I think, in my view. Let's say you decide that um, the probability of uh, people who have certain uh, personality disorders, for example, becoming omnicidal agents is is quite high. Um, and you decide that eugenics or genocide is the way to get around that, um, wiping out all of those people so that they can't do anything to harm the assumed uh, paradise utopia of trillions of people existing in the future, so to speak, um, even if it's a very, very low probability of that happening. Once you have that accepted idea that trillions upon trillions of people are going to exist in the future, uh, that is the infinity that you can multiply by to justify almost anything in the present day. I mean, is that the kind of objection that we're coming up with here um, to the assumptions that are being made in this philosophy? Because that was the perception I got, and I'm not I'm not sure whether that's right. Yeah, that that's uh, that's exactly right. Um, you know, the classic objection to one of the the many classic objections to utilitarianism, um, particularly. Uh, uh, total utilitarian utilitarianism, which prescribes actions that that maximize the the net value or well-being 
uh, you know, utilitarians will identify value with well-being um, that exists in the universe. And so you're you're sort of taking, um, uh, you know, so so from from there you could make the argument that you know if, if you're a doctor and you see a healthy patient, you know, maybe waiting for his wife uh, to come out of routine surgery or something, and then you think like, oh, I've got these five patients. And um, each one is, you know, has one has liver issues, the other has heart issues and so on. So I could sacrifice this one individual, harvest the organs and save these five people. So from a total utilitarian perspective, uh, the doctor would be immoral if she or he did not uh, murder this individual and harvest the organs. So because, you know, by doing that, um, she or he would maximize the total amount of well-being in the universe. So... um, and what you were saying before, so I feel like there, there's two issues. One is the discounting issue. So you could, uh, but there, there's a, a more fundamental question, which is, is it the case that um, that people who do not currently exist and might never exist, if not for some actions that you take, um, do they have value? And so if you have a person-affecting view, so-called person-affecting view, uh, it's for for an action to be wrong, it must uh, cause harm to some particular individual. And uh, uh, so for a person affecting, uh, someone with person affecting intuitions, they will tend to say that these, these currently non-existent, uh, possibly never existent individuals, they don't have any value. There may, there are various individuals who will exist independent of any of my actions today because they're going to be conceived by um, two people on the other side of the planet six months from now. I should care about this individual. Uh, these are sometimes called necessary people. But otherwise, just these, or future people, but but these possible people, these, these are just imaginary uh, figments of, of, you know, our thought um, experimentation. And they don't actually have any value. But if you believe that they have value, then there's a further question of uh, do what is that value? Is that value the same as current people, or is there some kind of temporal discounting? Um, and I, I think the arguments against temporal discounting are very uh, compelling. Um, you know, it's it just shouldn't be the case that you think the the life of one person today is worth given a disc, some discount rate, the lives of, you know, 5 billion people in a million years. <laughs> you know, that seems weird. But it doesn't seem weird um, to argue for a more person-affecting kind of view where you don't see uh, possible people as having value. The, the Part of the, the problem is that there could be so many of these possible people in the future living in computer simulations, in O'Neill cylinders, you know, cluttering our future light cone. There could be so many of them. Could you explain what an O'Neill cylinder is? Sorry, just briefly, because I have no idea. Oh, sure, sure, sure. Oh, yeah, sorry. sorry, sorry. Um, uh, it's a cylindrical spacecraft that rotates. Uh, I'm sure, every, like, pretty much everybody's seen pictures. It's just the name isn't, isn't okay, so yeah, yeah, common. Yeah. But it just spins around, and the quote-unquote centrifugal force, I don't know if, if that's a pet peeve of yours. No, I, I don't care. Centrifugal force you know, it feels pretty okay. real when you're going around the corner in a car, so I don't mind. Um, <laughs> right, yeah. So that force of, of nature, um, uh, or, you know, whatever, physics, um, that uh, provides artificial gravity. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, this is so it's you know, space packed full of people. Basically, is the idea here? 
space. There are all of these possible people that could be crammed into our future light cone. The sheer, vast, astronomical number of them. Um, if you, if you, so if you add that up, the total amount of value that could come to exist in the future to utterly dwarfs the amount of value that we've created on Earth in, so far. So therefore, from the utilitarian perspective, what should matter most to you, morally speaking, is what happens in the far future rather than what happens now. So you should care more about these future generations than current generations. Not that future people are worth more. It's just that there's so many more of these possible people that, again, could be living in you know trillions and trillions of them in computer simulations or spacecraft, or, you know, you know, a, a colonize, you know, col um, living on terraformed exoplanets, whatever. And so this 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 shifts the focus um, to the far future, and that leads to um, some you know pretty problematic uh, um, conclusions. You know, for example, so Nick Bostrom's notion of existential risk is essentially any event that would permanently prevent us from reaching a techno utopian world. And the techno one aspect of techno utopia is that it is full of as much value uh, as could possibly be uh, could physically be realized at any given moment in the future. Um, so it fought, and he argues that you know mitigating existential risk that should be priority number one, two, three, and four, and priority number five really should be colonizing space ASAP because there's all of this you know he he borrowing from others um, refers to this as our cosmic endowment of negentropy. So this is you know, this just all this this energy out there that could be used to realize value, and every second this is being you know being dissipated as a result of the second law of thermodynamics. Uh, suns are burning out, you know, the, the universe is getting more and more disorderly, uh, as it were. Uh, may, maybe, again, you would <laughs> be more precise with language. <laughs> but I'm a mere philosopher, so things are getting more disorderly. To me. It sounds about right to me, to be honest. Okay. <laughs> okay. Um, so, um, yeah, so as a result, if, if um, there is some hazard that is deemed not to be uh, not to pose an existential risk on Bostrom's definition, then we should not care about it nearly as much as we care about existential risk. Well, what sort of disasters um, don't count as existential risks? Like climate change. Um, he's pretty dismissive of climate change. Seems like a runaway um, greenhouse effect is somewhat improbable. Uh, therefore, we should be focusing on other things like machine superintelligence. Um, you know, global poverty, animal welfare, uh, and so on and so on. Um, racism, you know, uh, oppressive patriarchal systems. Um, Natural disasters, which after all are unlikely to ever cause the extinction of the human race, although they do cause a lot of suffering to an awful lot of people. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So the, these are, um, you know, these are, it should be of, of ancillary concern. Put them on the back burner. Let's just focus on the existential risks. Um, again, why? Because there's this techno-utopian vision of us becoming post-humans and living in, you know, creating trillions and trillions and trillions. You know, he calculates like 10 to the 54, 10 to the 58 um, uh, individuals crammed in computer simulations and living just happy computer simulation lives. And from the, the so-called, you know, from what he, the utilitarian philosopher from the mid-19th century, uh, Henry Sidgwick, um, called the point of view of the universe, 
which is the relevant moral point of view. Because a lot of ethical theories, you want a moral point of view, which is a, a point of view that's independent of your personal so-called prudential interests. You want a moral point of view that's, that's neutral. And, but f- from the utilitarian perspective, that moral point of view is the point of view of the universe. So when you peer down from the universe and you see one that is just bustling with value, 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 uh, all of these you know b- trillions and trillions, trillions of happy people, possible people who have been actualized, um, that is much better than if you just have um, you know, a, a smaller number, even if that smaller number has, even if that smaller number has much higher quality of life, you want as many of these individuals um, uh, to, to exist uh, as possible. And that is because of the total uh, nature of it, that you're aggregating all of the well-being from individuals and then um, to determine the, a net value of well-being that exists across the universe so so obviously i don't want to put words into your mouth here but i think Mm -hmm. there are this sort of divides into two aspects for me one is that the bostromian the bostromian the (laughs) let's not try and coin any new words nick bostrom's (laughs) worldview um which is so influential (laughs) in this field for a long time depends on an assumption we've talked about discounting potential future lives for uh time but also maybe probability mm-hmm. is worth doing as well. And uh, mm-hmm. the, the probability that you know a techno-utopia does arise or is even possible. I mean, all of this is assuming things that we don't yet know to be true. For example, that one could uh, successfully colonize space, um, that one could, uh, you know, within the sort of remaining lifespan of our species, successfully digitally upload people to have some sort of meaningful, satisfying life. All, all of these... Uh, aspects of this very specific utopian worldview that you point to are things that are quite specific to uh, Nick Bostrom's point of view. And I suppose the disadvantages is one, you might not think they're realistic. Uh, Two, you might think that it makes the whole field a little bit inaccessible to people who don't buy into this stuff anyway. Um, You know, who might not be as worried about machine superintelligence because they just can't view any of this as particularly likely to happen. Or it all seems very abstract compared to the concerns that we have on the ground today. It sort of relies on people mm-hmm. to subscribe to this. So I think that is all very specific to how Bostrom views things. The other side of it, of course, is the critiques of utilitarianism as a philosophy in itself, regardless of what you think mm-hmm. uh, the utility is going to end up being. And I think mm-hmm. yep. I think the issue that we come to here is just that the problem I have with utilitarianism, the, the irony... The irony here is palpable because there's lots of people in this field who are really worried about a superintelligence. And the thing that they're so worried about is that a superintelligence, uh, which an AI, you know, that people are imagining will have unbelievable capacity to do whatever you want, enact whatever change you want on the world. Um, it's essentially programming the superintelligence and deciding what it values is almost the same as saying, how do I design the mind of God, you know, to, to people who are concerned about this because of the uh, omniscience and omni ability of this superintelligent mm-hmm. uh, actor, and so the whole concern of this mm-hmm. field is how do we define its value function correctly, and how do we ensure that it implements utilitarianism in a way that we would like it to, and it's all assuming that this is the correct framework for making decisions in the first place, and it, it ignores flaws that are associated with. Uh, a utilitarian point of view and i just find it kind of ironic that people are worried about runaway utilitarianism taking over the world in the context of 
a super intelligence and yet they've sort of allowed runaway implicit utilitarianism to take over how they think the world should be run now through human agents do you see what i mean i mean the the, the problem I with do. utilitarianism yeah. i ultimately have and sorry to go on about this is just i just wonder if the, the fundamental idea that you can just put everything all of human experience all of human existence all of all, all that exists into a single function that you call value and that is ultimately some integer in a database somewhere and pretend that it's all totally fungible it's like a currency where you can just switch between different currencies um you know and it, it all matters mm -hmm. uh in in a way that you could say you know the the utility that is created by having 50,000 cans of diet coke is equivalent to the utility that is created by enjoying a nice sunset or some other trivial thing the the, the lie that all of human experience and all of the things that we should value is one possible to define in a way that everyone is happy with and in a way that's consistent and two fungible in such a way that you can trade it around is is the thing the uh, the simplifying assumption that allows you to say utilitarian solves every problem utilitarianism solves every problem and i remember one of the first times i debated like the idea of a super intelligent ai with someone else i was saying well the problem people are concerned about here is what do you program it with and the response I got from this person was utilitarianism, obviously. And I just thought, what's obvious about that? Uh -huh. Because it sounds great. And then you actually go into what has to be assumed to get an individual example of a working utilitarianism with a value function that you can calculate and isn't just some abstract notion of how we might value things if we were a lot smarter. And actually implementing that on the ground in ways that don't produce morally reprehensible outcomes it's not obvious it's not obvious at all that's my ramble anyway i wonder i wonder yeah. to what extent you agree with what i'm yeah, saying no no that's no i i do I, um it's it is you, you know you, you were making a distinction earlier which is um useful that there you know a component uh, a main component of the bostromian view is utilitarianism um, so on the one hand, you can look at the combination of, of utilitarianism and utopianism, and that's sort of the um, that nexus of the, these two different uh, ideologies. That's where my critique comes in, and I'm basically arguing that this is a very dangerous combination, um, uh, uh, you know, for reasons that that many other scholars have pointed out before, but not in the context of existential risk studies. Um, but then, if you look at utilitarianism itself. There are many uh, really good arguments <laughs> against it. Um, just today, I stumbled upon an article uh, that Peter Singer had written with, um, I think, Jeff McMahon uh, in the New York Times, where they base the essentially were arguing, uh, and there's context to you know to, to why they were saying this. But their argument was that um, uh, there are individuals with certain disabilities, uh, like um, cognitive disabilities, uh, where it, it might actually not be horribly immoral or not immoral at all for them to be, and I I paused to use the word, um, R-A-P-E. <laughs> and uh, it's, a, it's just an ugly word. But I mean, that was, and they were making that argument from a utilitarian perspective. Um, Singer himself has, has also made some really potentially problematic, I mean, some would argue uh, patently problematic uh, statements based on his utilitarian view about um, disabled people, more general comments about disabled people, about infanticide, 
uh, bestiality and so on. Um, and yeah, so I, I feel like the, the utilitarianism itself is uh, a bit frightening to me uh, for a variety of reasons. Um, and and so so the the you know my the points I'm making right now are the ones that are the most um, germane to what you were saying about uh, the you know what um, moral code would you prefer uh, a machine superintelligence to be acting in accordance with? Well, utilitarianism, of course, um, and you know that may or may not work out too well. <laughs> that would concern me, and that contains within it a, a sort of. I, this is this is sort of hard for me to talk about because philosophy is really not my area, so I don't know anything about it specifically. But if if you go with a philosophy <laughs> that a, a Ten Commandments style philosophy, where some things are just forbidden and you cannot do this regardless of the circumstances, mm-hmm. that's one thing. Mm-hmm. If you say your philosophy is you know that of the doctors, where they have the Hippocratic oath that says first do no harm. Or that of Asimov's laws of robotics, where the robots are not allowed to cause harm to come to humans or anything like that. Where you have rigid rules in your philosophy that demarcate, this is what we won't ever Mm -hmm. do under any circumstances, even if we calculate that things are going to be better if we do them. We just won't do it because it's immoral. If you have a philosophy that's more rigid like that, Mm -hmm. then that has some inbuilt constraints. Whereas if you're saying the philosophy by which the world should be governed is utilitarianism, then you implicitly say that whoever is defining what's valuable and what the good is that we should maximize is going to have license to do whatever they want to maximize it. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. In the paper that I um, wrote about this, I mentioned a few you know, scenarios where um, the you know the potential well for example i mentioned you know bostrom's own example where he uses expected utility theory to um argue that uh the way i present it is imagine you know there's an individual uh call him um you know bostrom's altruist and he or she is um sitting in front of uh two buttons and if you if uh this individual pushes the first button, then a billion living, breathing human beings will be prevented from dying, for example, by, you know, in front of a firing squad or something. Um, if if this individual pushes the second button, then um, the probability of an existential catastrophe, which again is some event that's going to prevent us from uh, realizing techno-utopia in the future, um, that that the probability of an existential catastrophe decreases by some really negligible... 10 to the minus 54. Quantity, uh, you know, zero point something like that yeah 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 yeah. you know which should this individual press and on bostrom's view um the answer is absolutely obvious the person would be a moral monster if she or he did not push the second button and therefore sacrifice the billion people the reason is that there are again there are all of these possible few you know possible people um these containers of value that could come to exist in the future and that their sheer number overwhelms uh, the moral uh, calculus, such that it the person should absolutely, you know, try to, to do whatever she or he can to realize um, the, the, these individuals. So I, I find that to be a very repugnant uh, <laughs> conclusion. Um, I think you know, real people matter more than imaginary people, and I would, and I, I worry that the Bostromian paradigm will end up being 
influential among like political leaders and policymakers and so on. And then at some point, you know, the hypothetical, um, Boss, you know, Bostrom's altruist scenario will be instantiated in some way in the real world. And so an individual will be confronted with these two options and that person is going to push the second button rather than the first. And I think that would be really catastrophic. Mm-hmm. And and I think to an extent we we see these arguments making their way into everyday political discourse. What I'm trying to say is I think it's distressing for me when I see people who I'd respected as members of a sort of rationalist, sceptical, science-driven community uh, allowing themselves to believe that they can do without considering questions of ethics and morals because obviously they are the rational people who can decide what's best for the vast majority of everyone else. And it's these kinds of people who would be uh, fascinated and seduced by looking at problems in the abstract um, in terms of 10 to the 54 potential lives rather than considering Mm -hmm. the, the impact of a single a single life, a single death, um, that mm. are sort of allowing themselves to believe that they have access to some level of hyper-rationality that allows them to make these decisions. And there are people like this who are now quite political, uh, politically influential in the UK, I think, who I'm sure mm-hmm. have read Nick Bostrom and been influenced by some of the things that he's discussing and have mm. misinterpreted or misapplied ideas surrounding this to to make and justify some decisions that I don't think are anything that any of us from a compassionate point of view would want to see in the world. So I think it's really important that um, alongside all your other work contributing to the field, that you're helping to continue the intellectual diversity and questioning even of the field itself as it becomes more influential. I think that's very important. Oh, thank you very much. I really appreciate that. It's okay. Um, So... We're coming to the end of our time here. I just wanted to ask if there's anything else that you wanted to talk about or mention, particularly if there's any new papers that you've got out, any new areas that you're looking into, or um, any new, of course, always uh, books or media appearances that you'd like to plug. Um, I think just um, I'm really excited about the current book project and it should be done. You know, I'm in the midst of, uh, as I mentioned before, uh, rewriting. You know, they say all writing is rewriting, and I, I, that's certainly be- proven to be true with me. Um, so it should be out in the in the next few months. And pretty much nobody has done any scholarly work on the history of this secular notion of human extinction. You know, the human extinction in our contemporary biological. Uh, uh, you know, evolutionary biological sense. Um, there's one exception who is at Oxford University, Thomas Moynihan, um, and he's now converting his really excellent uh, dissertation on the general issue into a book. Uh, so I'm super excited about that. But uh, you know, his views are a little bit different than than mine. Uh, very complementary, but you know, they, they fill different holes. Um, but but still fit together quite nicely. Um, but otherwise, really, nobody's worked on this topic, and I'm just I'm really excited to get it out there. Um, it's it's uh, it's a fascinating it's a fascinating topic, um, and hopefully, it'll inspire uh, readers to do their own scholarship and figure out um, how my view could be either improved or scrapped, <laughs> you know, in order to get a better sense of like how the concept has when it originated how it has evolved over time 
and indeed um, how it might uh, evolve in the future. Mm-hmm. That's really, really fascinating. And I'm sure, I hope you won't mind um, if when this book comes out in a few months, um, I get a chance to read it and then we can grab you back on the show again and talk about another another very cheery topic, the history of human extinction uh, with you on the show. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, this was really uh, very enjoyable and hope to talk to you soon. Take care. Remember, you can find the show, Physical Attraction, at www.physicspodcast.com where you'll find the links uh, to our Patreon and our PayPal and the contact form which you can contact us on. You can catch up with Phil's work at xriskology on Twitter and at www.xriskology.com. You can help him out there. He also has a Patreon which you're uh, obliged to subscribe to if you wish and you can buy his books. Uh, The most recent one I believe is Morality, Foresight and Human Flourishing but there's a new one coming out soon. So it's very much worth keeping your eye on those things. Um, Until next time then, take care.